Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome to the IC Interviews. I'm Chris Akers. I'm delighted to be speaking with Dr. Paul Jordan, CEO of Amasi Global Investors. Paul co-founded Amasi in 2010 and previously worked for Noble Fund Managers in Stuart Ivory. Amasi are based in Edinburgh and focus on the small and mid-cap markets. Paul, thank you for speaking with me. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Now, for our listeners who aren't aware of Amasi, can you give us an overview of your funds and assets under management? Sure. Yeah, so we have a, a, a UK solar companies fund, which is a, an OIC. Um, our, our products are all very much uh, sold just in the UK currently. Um, the, the small companies fund is a fund I've been managing for, well, actually an embarrassingly long time, but something like 21 years now. Um, and uh, I started, it was a first state fund originally. It followed me to Noble Group when I moved there in 2007. And then it was one of the funds we had when we started the Marty in 2010. So it's, there's been continuity. So I feel like it's been a big part of my life, this fund. And um, that's about, uh, it was, it's about a billion pounds under under management in that fund. So that's that's our biggest fund at the moment. Uh, we also have a, a venture capital trust called Amarty Aim VCT. And um, that was a fund that, again, dates back to First State. I, I started managing VCT in 2005 <clears throat> at First State Investments. And that, again, came with me to Noble Group and then was a core part of Amarty when we started it. In fact, it was the biggest fund in Amarty right at the beginning, back in 2010. Um, and it's grown, it grew early on through us adding in a couple of other VCTs, which we were invited to, to take over the management of. Uh, one was called Victory VCT and the other uh, was Invesco Perpetual Aim VCT in 2010 and 11. We took those over and over the time we've merged them all together. And the, fi- the, the final merger was 2018. And that VCT is now just under 300 million under management. So it's grown a huge amount. I remember when when that fund started in 2005, it was an incredible amount of work to raise 10 million pounds for it. And I think we started with 10 or 11 million, um, which was a perfectly viable starting point. But, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a long road to get it to the kind of scale it now has. And it's, it's got, you know, it's really benefiting a lot from having that sort of scale. And then we, we run some AIM portfolios for people who, um, uh, for advised clients who, who um, want to benefit from the inheritance tax advantages of uh, owning AIM stocks directly. <clears throat> so that's the only service we run where it's structured so that the clients own the stocks directly rather than through a fund, but we run it like a fund. So every every client we have has the same portfolio. You know, other, some managers approach this rather differently, more like a private client fund manager where everybody's got something different. <clears throat> we really try and run it like a fund. So there's a model portfolio and all the clients replicate that. That's uh, that's about £50 million under management. And then we have our newest product, which is the um, Amati Strategic Metals Fund. This is we started back in March this year. And uh, that's run by uh, a different investment team, George Lequeem and Mark Smith, who have 25 years experience each pretty much of investing in global mining companies and um, uh, the idea of that fund is to invest in, to invest strategically in <clears throat> across the kind of mining spectrum for metals. And there's two aspects to it. One is ob- obviously the um, the, the um, extraordinary potential demand there is as a result of electrification of of um, transport. You know, 
it looks like it's very much going to be demanded um, as part of energy transition. And that, that's creating all kinds of extraordinary new sources of demand for certain types of metals. Difficult to predict areas of demand uh, when, you, when you're te- dealing with a, uh, an industrial change like this. You can't take anything for granted and very often extrapolating into the future is incorrect. It's, you know, it's obviously tricky in this area, but, but we do know that an awful lot of new materials are going to be needed. So, you know, think of lithium batteries as a good example. And there's all kinds of different chemistries involved. Um, but we know that, you know, lithium batteries are already dominant enough that they are going to be used in pretty big volumes. There may be and hope, hope very much, we very much hope there will be other chemistries that come along to supplement it because I don't think we'll have enough of the raw materials for the, the lithium, cobalt, nickel, manganese type chemistries that are the highest performing kind of batteries at the moment. Um, but there'll be other ones that come in beneath and they'll all create their own demands. But the idea, part of the idea of that metals fund is to be able to um, invest in providing the raw materials through mining. And the other side of it, and we wanted to have a flexible mandate um, so that the investors could own it really for the long term. And the other side of the coin is precious metals, which have a very different sort of um, investment dynamic or are also part of the mandate. So gold and silver, which are more defensive type investments um, and really allow the fund to have ways of maneuvering through different phases in the cycle. And it's, it's, it's very important to us when we construct a fund that we do so bearing in mind that the, mar- the stock market is really a bit of a manic depressive and, uh, you know, in the classic sort of um, Benjamin Graham type sense that, um, you know, there are some some decades it's fantastic and other decades it's a nightmare. So we, we want funds that can be structured and have enough options that they can invest for tough times or they can invest for good times. And, um, you know, in designing a fund mandate, I think that's pretty important. And, and we try to do that. And our idea really is, you know, we see ourselves very much as providing products for the UK investing public that's you know we're uk investors ourselves um i like to think you know one of our guiding principles in working out what to what to provide for funds um is uh it's to 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 devise funds that we want to invest in ourselves and you know in isas in pensions and you know they need to be things you can hold for the long term they need to have sensible risk management um they know they need to be not only trying to do one kind of thing it will only do well in one kind of environment and we're very conscious of all of that. Um, so that's really our emphasis rather than trying to devise the kind of raciest funds that might be the top of the tables one year, but or even longer, but you know, might then go through periods when they do terribly badly. So it's it's you know, risk management is quite high up there. Now with that new strategic metals funds, um, there are often ESG concerns around metals and mining. How how do you deal with that at Domati and with that fund? I think we 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 pay a lot of attention to it is what I, the first thing I would say that, you know, there are ESG and, and I like to call it ESGH and the H for us is human rights. It's the kind of big omission in a lot of investment discussion these days. Um, but ESGH uh, principles are, are absolutely core to the way we run funds. But I'm, I'm very wary of um, of simply jumping on bandwagons with this. And I, I'm not so much interested in labels and I'm much more interested in what makes a difference. Um, and I'm, I'm wary of the idea of, uh, you know, a regulator coming along and saying, this is what this means. And so we're trying to avoid terms which are defined by regulators or outside parties. And I'm, I think 
ESG H only makes a difference if the fund managers are leading the charge and involved in figuring out what matters. Um, and, and, and very much not wanting us to get tangled up in endless box ticking. Or the other, the other thing I'm wary of in this area is is um, uh, doing things which cause huge amounts of money to be spent on consultants to come up and draw up metrics, which in the end really don't mean very much. And you know, I think these are significant perils for the industry at the moment. Um, and um, so, the, you know, the the things which matter to us in terms of mining, um, you know, number one, um, what what jurisdiction are you mining in? And this is a human rights issue, which I feel pretty strongly about. And it, I, we call it pretty much broadly the clean trade approach. And that was a term coined by uh, an, a, a writer, well, an academic. Um, called Leif Fouenar. He, he, he was at King's College London. Now he's at Stanford University. He wrote a book called Blood Oil, really very much pointing out the human rights implications for the international trade in commodities. And um, if you, this, sorry, I don't want to go into too much detail, but this goes back to Article 1 of the two covenant, international covenants on human rights. Article 1 is identical between the two of them. And it talks about the distribution uh, of natural resources um, that needs to be disposed of for the benefit of the people who live in the country where they come from. So that's the, the top principle in a way. If we can't, if we don't feel that in extracting those resources, there's any benefit going to the people of the country where it came from, then you know, we draw a human rights principle there uh, where we, we, we won't invest you know, for, for that reason. And, and actually we're using Freedom House scores as a kind of indicator of when that's likely to be the case, and I would say we're not trying to draw the line very high here. We're trying to we're trying to um, exclude the most extreme situations, and the reason is because, of course, that investment in the country can make the difference all the difference to the inhabitants of the country. It's usually important that kind of investment, but there are some situations which are sufficiently bad where that investment really has no chance of making any difference to the population. So then we don't go, um, and you can see that written up in our documentation, and I think we're maybe unusual it's an idea that i'm really trying to I'm really keen to have wider adoption of in the city uh, you know i don't want it to be proprietary to us i would love it to be adopted thank you now, now looking at your your funds um could you tell us about one or two of your favorite holdings and why you why you like them <clears throat> now this is always a really difficult question because the funds have a lot of stocks and you know it's a bit like what's your favorite piece of music well you know i love many many different bits of music and it's it, you know, is we set a lot of store by diversification. So we want companies that are doing a very wide range of really different things. There's, there's a company called Accesso Technology, which we've known for 20 years plus. It's an interesting business, had some really big ups and downs in its life. Um, it started off very much as a lifestyle company, which came to market with a really important piece of electronic queuing technology. And, and interestingly, it had the global patents for electronic queuing. And... Um, you know, it turns out that's a pretty important area of activity. Its its main application was theme parks, and you know, which in many senses are global queuing parks. Uh, if you if you have been to one of those, then you'll know that a lot of queuing is involved, and making it electronic, of course, is hugely sensible. And then there was a change of management, and um, the company really kind of got its act together following that, and became much better at selling its products, but also made some acquisitions. And it's now become, through those acquisitions, um, bought a company called Accesso, and that's why it changed its name, which is one of the largest global ticketing, online ticketing companies. 
and um, had a very successful period and then a very tough period when actually its strategy became, it, it kind of went wrong effectively and, and it had, it had a few dead ends. The shares collapsed to a pretty low level and um, we, yeah, it was a stock we bought into with the small companies fund during the pandemic because we thought well, actually this this business has huge amount of capability to re-establish itself as one of the most important online ticketing companies, online king businesses. Obviously it needed leisure parks to reopen, which they broadly have. And um, you know the, what was going on behind the scenes corporately was refocusing the business. The original chief executive of Accesso, who was very talented, extremely capable manager, came back into the business to refocus it. And that's been done pretty effectively. So that's been one of our kind of rebound stocks over the last year. It's been a very good experience to own it. You know, it might be worth talking about a mining stock, which we have in the Small Companies Fund. I, I won't talk about too many because obviously George, this is George and Mark's territory, but it's one we co-own with their fund. It's called Atalaya Mining. It's a copper mining company in Spain. This company has been very effectively run under its current management team, which doesn't go all the way back. It had a, Again, it had a bit of a stuttered start to its life, but when the right management team took over the assets, uh, it's become very effectively run. And it's it's got one of the one of its issues is that it's a relatively high cost producer of copper. So it's a copper miner, and you know copper is probably the, the most sort of surefire strategic metal because you know copper and electricity are kind of um, uh, joined at the hip. You know copper is the most efficient metal for transporting electricity around. You know yes, there are other ways of doing it, and there are certain ways of substituting it, but it, it's essentially very difficult to substitute for most of its applications. It's also it takes 10 years to really discover and open a copper mine. It's a very long and difficult process. So the barriers to entry are very high. Atalaya's mine in Spain is uh, actually called Rio Tinto. And it was actually the original project which Rio Tinto itself was uh, created with. So it's a, it's a historic mining district in Spain. And because it's now quite low grade, it's been relatively high cost production. So that put me off it for quite a long time. And the reason why we've got switched on to it as much as we have, I think, is in part because they've developed a very innovative uh, and they've cultivated a very innovative new processing technology, which has been developed by a lady from uh, a doctoral um, graduate from Cambridge University who's come up with a, um, a, a what looks like a really interesting new processing technology. And insofar as they can apply this to their mining, they can actually open up a number of adjacent deposits near the Rio Tinto mine, which are already zoned for mining and uh, are higher grade, um, but they're refractory ore. So they need, they, you know, the complex ore, they need, they need this kind of processing to make them flourish. And I'm personally pretty optimistic about the company's ability to do that. Um, and I like the application of innovation to helping to solve the, um, the, the um, meeting the demand issues for copper. Um, and, you know, it's clearly, it's a Spanish jurisdiction, so it meets our criteria for where the metal is coming from. We think it's a very well-run company. They do also have another mining, mine that they're trying to open in the north of Spain called Turo. And they're applying for the permits for that. Um, you know, whenever you do this kind of thing, you tend to get some local opposition. And they've had some local opposition. They've also had a huge amount of local support for the project. So we're very much hoping they'll get that permission. So there's a number of you know growth prospects for this um, for this company, but I'm particularly interested in the in the processing technology that they bring to bear. 
and you know of course it's it's um benefiting hugely from the strong demand for copper that we're seeing and then you know another completely different kind of company um let's talk about um you know this is one that right at the small end of the uh, the small companies fund and it's in the venture capital trust as well a company called Sayata. this is a recent float <clears throat> you know, this is really about us trying to back what we think of as the most important innovations for what we're trying to achieve globally so i, I think you know the the for me you know responsible investing is much more it's not so much about what you don't do it is it's partly about what you don't do and I, I, in terms of what you don't do i put human rights as being the defining category of the, the things where, which define your red lines. But in terms of what you should positively be trying to do is we're trying to foster and, and support the companies which we think are bringing the most important kind of innovations. And Sayeta, when we met it, was a company that had spent three years plus um, designing uh, a, 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 um, uh, a pretty fundamentally new kind of new, new design concept for electric motors. And this is something called an axial flux electric motor, whereas most electric motors used today in pretty successful vehicles in cars like Teslas and Toyotas would be radial flux motors. And that radial flux technology has been pushed pretty much as far as it can be in terms of efficiency. But axial flux is a fundamentally more efficient design and has some really significant advantages. Sayeta had kind of the way they put it as a company, they'd gone into stealth mode, they'd done three years of R&D on this. And we think they designed a very elegant solution to bringing a commercial axial flux motor to market. And so, you know, it was a UK business, it needed capital to, to take its next steps. And the Venture Capital Trust went in first, we made a pre-IPO investment, which enabled the company to float, gave it the financial confidence to float. It also enabled it to immediately start making new hires and planning bigger. And then three months later, it floated and raised 35 million pounds, which is completely transformational for that business. And so now it's it's really got a shot at commercializing itself effectively. Now, looking at your, your website, it seems as if you have significant overseas exposure in your portfolios, even in the UK Smaller Companies Fund. Is that is that accurate? And can you explain your thinking behind that? <clears throat> yes. So the thing not to be confused by that is that what that's analyzing is all the companies we invest in in the, in the small companies fund are UK listed. So we buy the shares in London. But um, some of them are dual listed overseas, of course, but they all have a London listing. But they sell all over the world. And that's what you'd expect from you know, enterprising London listed companies. You wouldn't expect them to be selling in the UK. And we, we monitor how much of their sales are UK facing, how much of their sales are overseas facing. And we deliberately, you know, it's consciously, uh, we, we advocate having uh, more than just UK sales exposure. And, you know, that's it's very much a point about diversification in the fund that we want our companies to be succeeding, not just in the UK market, but in global markets. And that that, that sort of mix that you see on the website about um, overseas sales is really a measure of of, of that diversification. That, that, that makes sense. That's great. Um, how, how do you view the attractiveness of the UK market compared to investing overseas? Well, yeah, I, I think what we have in London is a, a, a you know a global a world class stock market, and and a, you know it's very important. Uh, I, I believe it's very important that you UK the UK public understands the value of that. 
you know, we've got one of the best stock markets in the world. It's an extremely difficult thing to create. You know, it has some, there are some issues around that to do with monopolistic behavior. And the London Stock Exchange doesn't always help itself by becoming a bit too monopolistic and not putting enough emphasis on making it cost effective to be listed. But it is a it's a world-class stock market. And the reason it's world-class is, you know, very largely regulatory and legal. And those things sound boring, but they're just massively important. It's a stock market as an investor, you can depend on it to uh, to to function well because it has it's it's well regulated. It has you know, it's part of it. It's in a jurisdiction where the, there is the rule of law and the rule of law is independent and it's, you know, the law is applied um, independent from executive control. And so you have, you have those kind of protections and, you know, it, it, around that in London, you have deep pools of capital. You have, you know, the, the, the city of London, which, um, you know, has, has um, a, a massive workforce which supports it. And, you know, all of that is, they're very high barriers to entry with that. And you know, London's really on a par with New York in that respect, and we should value that as a country because it's 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 one of the UK's um, really significant assets. So we like to invest with a global mindset, but through London because we we think that structure is is really excellent. Now there is a an aim focus to your funds. I think around half of the smaller companies' funds is invested in aim. And obviously the DCT and the IHE funds are AIM focused. Do you think the AIM market is working as a venue for high growth capital? Broadly, I, I do. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's it. Uh, I think it's it's one of the leading markets in the world for small companies. And yeah, there's lots of people who love to knock AIM. Um, I, I'm, I'm myself absolutely not in that camp. I think what AIM has achieved over 26 years of its life is fantastic. And it took, you know, the other thing to remember when talking about AIM is, you know, it takes a very long time to create a market that's that good. And so I, I, I'm more of a kind of half glass half full person when it comes to how I view AIM. I think, I think what it's achieved is fantastic and hugely important for the UK. And again, it's, it's an asset of national importance and, you know, it is very well supported by policy in the, in the UK. And I hope it will continue to be because, you know, it's, it takes a very long time to create things like this, and it takes a very short period of time to undermine them. So it could, you know, it could be it'd be very easy to do a lot of damage to aim by, you know, either well-intentioned or badly-intentioned policy. Um, you know, I, I I think we should really try and understand its importance. You know, it's not to say that I wouldn't like to see some competition come in, and I think the best way of improving aim would be competition. And I'm I'm interested in what Aquis Exchange are doing. I, I, I have a, hold the founder of Aquas in very high regard, and I think the, you know, if anyone can produce an adequate rival to AIM, it's probably them. So you know, and I'm not an investor in the company, but you know, I, 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 I actually, I'm impressed by what they've done, and they brought some, you know, they brought some really interesting innovations to what a small company market could look like, and so having some competition would be a good thing. If, as long as it's not too confusing for people, it, it hasn't yet been embraced. I wouldn't say by the the broad mainstream of companies that are listing, but you know it'll be it, it's good to introduce competition for the point of view of keeping costs down and and removing that kind of some monopolistic behaviour which isn't helpful in in a stock market. Do you think there is a risk of um, losing the tax privileges it, it enjoys? Um, obviously, we're in quite a high tax 
environment at the moment. Do you think that's a risk? And is that something you're concerned about? Uh, yes, I mean, it'd be, it'd be wrong not to be concerned about that. And it's something we think quite hard about. I, I think successive governments have really actually understood the value of and the importance of having a public market which can attract capital to high growth companies. So I think the investment that's being made has been made over a long period of time in AIM through those various tax benefits has actually paid off magnificently. And, um, you know, I think the payoff has been sufficiently large that I'm, I'm, I'm not too concerned that a policymaker would come along and think, well, this is just isn't worth it. So, you know, there's always the there's always the danger of a kind of populist type knee jerk response to the thing. Oh, this is this is bad. It's just supporting wealth. Um, you know, wealthy people wrongly, you know, that that would, there's always the danger of that. But, you know, I, I think, you know, this the, the aim has been supported by both Labour and Conservative governments over 26 years. You know, if you've got a more extreme kind of government coming in, then yeah, we might get rid of it. But I, I think if you have a kind of broadly centre-left or centre-right government, I think the chances of that are pretty low myself. But, you know, I, I don't take anything for granted and I'm, I'm not a, a crystal ball gazer there. And, and we also have to think about the risks of, uh, of, of that changing and what that would mean. Um, and we do think about that. But, you know, I, I, I think it stacks up as a, as a, as a policy. Um, so from that point of view, you know, the time to get really worried about policies is when they obviously don't stack up. It's been, it's been a very active year in terms of IPOs. How, how do you feel about the quality of IPOs coming through? Um, you've already mentioned Sayuta. Uh, I think you've also participated in Victorian plumbing. Could you chat us through your thinking on that? I mean, yeah, it's been an incredibly active year for IPOs. It's been a year, in a way, it's been, you know, the year of IPOs to, to a big degree. And that, that's been fantastic for the uh, for the sell side in the in the industry and and and, you know, and to be fair i think it, it, you know I, I view that very positively i think it's you know the, the sell side often gets overlooked when we're talking about markets it's hugely important to well-functioning markets to have a strong and competitive sell side um set of businesses out there and and you know the sell side uh by which i mean broke corporate finance broking corporate broking the the, the the companies which are floating these businesses they were really um, um, uh, compressed by a set of regulatory changes and, and sat on, if you like, pretty hard. So it reduced the number of, the number of players reduced. Um, but actually, this has been a fantastic year to rejuvenate the sell side in the industry, and that's that is a healthy thing. I don't I don't view that as negatively at all. Um, but of course, you know, there, there's always the risk when you get a kind of IPO boom like that. That uh, then the, the you know, it's, it's too much. It happens too too much too fast, and you can also have carelessness coming in, and maybe you can get some lower quality issues starting. But I think in general, the quality of issues has been pretty high, and you know, the issue has more been around pricing, and you know, how much do we? That's a stock market wide issue, and you know, the the reason why lots of companies were floating is because pricing was good, and you know, the market was sufficiently buoyant. Um, if you like, stock market ratings caught up with private company ratings, and for, you know, bizarrely, for a number of years before, stock market ratings were much lower than they were in the private markets, and so you had the, you couldn't get very many flotations when that was happening, and then suddenly the public market caught up, uh, partly as a function of the huge amount of capital creation that went on in the pandemic, so the money supply 
rose at an unbelievable rate in 2020. And that does feed through to asset prices and and the public markets, you know, moved because of that. Uh, so that, that, if you like, drove up asset prices and that then led to a big number of IPOs. So the issue, the I'd say that the main issue in 2021 has been overpricing, but some really good businesses have floated. And we think Victorian Plumbing is an example of that, you know, very, a company with incredibly impressive track record as a private business, uh, founder-led, um, you know, you clearly got that entrepreneurial energy and, and, and talent and commitment to the business that you get with a, when you have a big founder stake in a company. And we like to see the original entrepreneurs still in place in companies. It can very often be, um, you know, it can very often be a very powerful formula. You know, there's no hard and fast rules over these things, but um, in a company like Victorian Plumbing, um, Gear for Music is another example of that, where you've got an online retailer that's been incredibly effective at growing that online sales format. And that's because you've still got the founder in place and you've got that, um, uh, you know, that deep skill set and that, that where the business is really oriented to online sales and has, uh, you know, it's the, the whole way the business has been constructed is around that format. And so we are, you know, we're believers in, um, in, in, you know, in that basic kind of business structure, the founder in place, online sales special speciality. Um, we think, you know, those companies have got further to go. Um, you know, Victorian Plumbing has gone down since it went up and it's gone down and it's kind of hovered around its IPO price. So that's telling you the IPO price was probably a bit high, but we think the business quality is very good. And there, there are other examples of that. There are some companies that have floated where, where we thought the quality wasn't so good. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and we haven't, we've been trying to be very selective about how we've invested in IPOs. There's one which is a bit controversial where we invested after the IPO because it fell significantly but we and we think the company is really outstandingly interesting, but it's become, you know, it's had a very volatile ride, which is Alpha Wave, and that's a that's an a IP company selling into the global semiconductor market, and it's selling a very very particular kind of intellectual property, which is all to do with the way chips communicate with each other. You know, the other sort of controversial, and the thing we do give significant pause for thought over is to what degree do we deal with China? And you know, this is an investment question that's gonna come up in all sorts of different forms in the future. And um, you know, there's maybe something of broader interest here that you know, I, clearly when Trump was president of the US, he decided that he would take a confrontational approach with China and um, brought in some legislation which forbade US technology companies to sell to China. And so, you know, this is an aggressive approach to take. You know, I personally think that strategically that's completely wrongheaded and will, will actually produce exactly the wrong consequence, the exact opposite consequence of, of, um, of what it was intended to do. You know, it was intended to weaken China. Actually, what it will do is it will strengthen China because what, what will happen is China will just find, A, it will get more aggressive towards Taiwan because Taiwan holds a lot of this technology. So you're bringing forward the date potentially at which China um, aggressively takes over Taiwan. I hope that date never arrives, but that strategy of, of isolating China from technology point of view <clears throat> is gonna have adverse, adverse consequences in that direction from what I can see. Um, the second thing it will do is it will force China to develop its own, its own proprietary technology. So, you know, you had a situation before where really the US dominated a huge number of 
um, technology areas and China lived with it because it could buy them. But as soon as you say China, you can't buy these, you're forcing it to, to break free and develop its own. And you know, yes, that will take time and it will be costly. It's a waste of resources um, from, a, from a global perspective, but it's also not achieving the objective that it set out to do. And you know, the, those famous words of Donald Trump was, it, it's easy to win a trade war with China, we'll just come back to bite massively and the irony of those words will be profound so you know alpha wave is kind of at the nexus of this because alpha wave is a canadian company uh it's not bound by and you know they the reason they listed in london is because they didn't want to list in america because they don't want to be bound by that legislation and they uh, will they and they want to sell their technology to china and so you know strategically the question we ask then is you know, should we be as investors be? Um, well, should we? Should is that something we should ourselves say? Well, actually, no, I won't invest in a company that sells to China, or, or you know, yes, that's something that we can support. And I've, you know, I've, I think in investing in AlphaWave, we've taken the view that actually, strategically, that to try and isolate China is the wrong approach. It doesn't achieve anything helpful. Um, you know, I, I personally take the view that. You know, I personally wouldn't want to invest directly in China in Chinese companies. And again, I've got human rights reason for that. Um, but that doesn't mean that I want to be dumb strategically and um, make matters worse. You know, I'd love to, you know, I think if we engage in China with China positively, hopefully that's the best way to address our human rights concerns over what's going on. Isolation is not the right way to do it, I don't think. So, you know, <clears throat> that, that that's the, the kind of, deeper level of questioning about AlphaWave that, that needs to go on. But you know, in terms of the quality of the business, the quality of the product, we regard it as well leading. We don't regard the kind of insinuations of circularity that the FT made as being accurate. Um, and you know, we certainly looked into all of those things before we invested and um, you know, probing them further since that article came out, we're satisfied that, you know, that it was wrongheaded and that actually this is this is you know, it's a company potentially rather like ARM technology. It's a company of, you know, of, of global significance in terms of technology and selling IP into the uh, semiconductor industry. It's, um, you know, it, it, it's fantastically important. And, um, you know, ARM just proved how much that, how effective that is as a business strategy, if you get it right. And, and we think AlphaWave can do that. So, yeah, we think it's actually, a, it remains a very, very interesting investment opportunity and you know that we think that whole sort of ft thing is playing out still so you know it maybe needs a bit more time to play out but uh, i think we think that the company will prove itself given the the increase in the money supply which you've mentioned and another factor do you think there is an issue with with valuations at the moment with stocks being overvalued and is that a concern with with your portfolios i think there is a concern over that you know it's uh, it's very easy as a fund manager to never want to say that because <clears throat> of course you you know you want people to invest in your funds and you you know and but I, I think it's important that fund managers are cognizant of valuation risk at the moment and it has it does have implications it does have implications for how we run the funds and <clears throat> you know I think unusually for us we're we've pushed ourselves more in the direction of of finding those areas of the market where valuation risk is lower and you know that means sometimes um, you know backing away from 
you know, some of the what look like they might be the highest growth areas. <laughs> because, you know, clearly, if you if we go into an environment where interest rates start rising, and there's a huge debate around that, you know, I think we're more inclined to think that they are going to rise than not. You know, I've read lots of arguments from economists who say that's nonsense, that, you know, don't worry about it. Inflation's going to tail off next year and this is all going to be okay. A bit more skeptical about that than is comfortable. And so we've got to think through very carefully, well, what happens when, if we do go back into a rising rates environment because inflation is higher? And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that that's going to happen with any certainty, but we've certainly got suspicions that it might. So, we need to take account of it as a risk factor. And clearly then what it does is it changes the way you discount the future. And, um, you know, that is quite painful if you've got very, very sort of futuristic investment horizons, you know, and we've seen this many times in the past that the market then snaps back and starts discounting future earnings in a different way. And so, you know, we're pretty cognizant of that. And I think that's another reason why we you know, really put the emphasis on diversification in the portfolio you know, we're not a kind of pure sex and violence fund where we're all trying to, you know, looking at what's happening in 10 years time and saying, isn't that going to be wonderful? It, you know, we're also very much, um, while we have some of that kind of in the funds and the site is a good example of that kind of investment um, where, we, you know, we think there's fantastic potential in the future and we're very keen to have some of those companies in the mix and they've got to be very well chosen. But, um, you know, we've also, alongside that, you know, we're investing in house builders in the UK and um, one savings bank, one of the um, a specialist mortgage provider in, the, in, in, you know, very well constructed companies, which are very much more about what's happening here and now. Um, and so having that in the mix is important. And, and you know, that's, yeah, we're, because we're cognizant of that uh, inflation stroke interest rate risk, we've got more emphasis on that in the funds now than we would have had, say, five years ago. Thank you for speaking to us, Paul. Much appreciated. Great pleasure. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for, for having me on. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.